It's very good to see each of you this morning, and uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, and uh, it's just good to see your faces, really. Uh, thank you for coming, and each of you watching on our live stream, this is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice, we'll be glad in it. We've been able to sing truth thus far, and uh, we're gathered together on the Lord's Day with the Lord's Word in our lap. We're going to study that Word and be an encouragement to one another, and uh, this, is, this is God's blessing. Um, sometimes it just doesn't quite fit into words, but this, this here is what I needed. I don't know if it's what you needed, it's what I need. And I've been looking forward to it all week. We're going to finish out our study of the book of Jonah. And uh, to understand this book as it is, especially the confusing part as the end of it, we're going to need words like we just sang where we understand that uh, not only is God's mercy more than our sins, but our sins are many. There, there just aren't a lot of songs, it seems, in churches today that feature the fact that we are not just sinners, but we do it a lot. Uh, this little book right here will be a great reminder, a, a depravity check. And uh, we'll finish it out. We'll take a couple of weeks to talk about what we've learned so far this year, and then we'll jump back into the Gospel of John. But I want to draw your attention. This is the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah, and we'll begin reading in verse 5, which is where we left off last time, concluding with verse 4. We'll pray to ask the Lord's help, and then we'll study this together. This is verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind that the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant? for which you did not labor, nor did you make it to grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the ending of this book. We ask your blessing on our understanding it and your strength to be obedient to it. Lord, I ask on this Sunday morning, standing here, others seated here, others seated in their homes, Lord, remind each of us why we do this. I suppose it... it very easy to do it because it's habit. But Lord, remind us that we're your creation sitting at your feet. And it's time for us to learn from you, to be instructed, to be rebuked perhaps, but to be held tight, to be loved, to be shaped. And Lord, may it be that after this time together at your feet, we'll look like you more than we look like us. Use this old book to do that very thing. Change our hearts. And may this service today 
reverberate in eternity. That your word would accomplish the thing it was set out to do. Thank you again for church. Thank you for a gathering of believers. And thank you for time. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, when we left Jonah, we back up the clock or the, the, the storyline just a bit more. Back in the belly of the fish, it, it, it does seem evident that Jonah was changed, that he heard the word of the Lord and his heart was changed by the grace and mercy of his Lord. And we see that indicated in the fact that he was obedient to go to Nineveh, complete what he'd originally been told to do, and that was to speak out against it. And after he had spoken out against Nineveh and predicted its fall, we learned that nothing happened as a result of that. And we learned that Jonah likely took that as an indication that something was dreadfully wrong. He winds up very angry. He considers that God has made a fool out of him. And we're left at the end of, of chapter 3 and the first four verses of chapter 4 to try to figure out what in the world do we make of the remainder of this, this story. Jonah's angry. And it's because Nineveh deserved punishment, and that's not what happened. Now, previous in the book, for putting all this together, the same wrath of God had fallen on Jonah in the form of a big storm, and it had to do with the rest of the men that were on the ship as well. And the only reason that Jonah survived the punishment that he deserved was because of God's grace and His mercy, and all of them were saved. It even took a fish that was prepared to gobble him up so he didn't drown when he was thrown overboard. And then we see that prayer in chapter 2 that gives us indication that at least at that point, he understood what grace was all about. But by the time we find ourselves deep into the fourth chapter, you've got Jonah resembling, or probably should say foreshadowing, this unforgiven servant we hear Jesus talk about in a parable who having been forgiven this massive debt, is unwilling to forgive someone that owes him something quite small. And Jonah's become the very illustration of things that must be worked out of our hearts if we're going to look anything like our Lord in heaven. So the previous paragraph we studied last week, the first four verses of chapter 4, ended with the question. The question was, do you do well to be angry? And that's where we left it last week. And by the time we pick up today, it seems Jonah's turned his back on that question. He doesn't answer it out loud. He just begins to walk away. Have you ever been in a situation where this is someone who's having a fit? You ask a simple question. The simple question receives a stare, a pivot, and you watch the back of that person as they walk away. That seems to be what's happening here. He's leaving the city, heading east. He sets up this makeshift shelter where he can watch the city from a distance to see what will happen to it. So contrast that with how when God saw what Nineveh did, he re relented of the disaster he promised. Jonah's not taking that as uh, the final say. He, he's, he's determined to see something else take place. So he's going to go watch and see if the Lord changes his mind. Now, some of the commentators, depends on who you're reading, there are there's some that, that want to interpret the, the final verses of chapter 4 as actually a flashback that happened previous to the end of chapter 3 where the city spared. This is not impossible, uh, but it's not very likely. The idea would be that what Jonah's doing here, these, all these verses and the conversation and the anger uh, was during the 40 days, maybe toward the end of the 40 days. So Jonah's going to set up camp outside the city and watch the final countdown of the 40th day to see 
the explosion or the firefall or whatever is going to take place. And then we read what actually happened afterward in chapter 3. The only problem with that, even though it would make for much better viewing if you're going to put this on you know, Netflix or something, it just abuses the natural reading of the Hebrew. The, the way you would read it naturally, if you're just reading, and again, that, this is Hebrew, and it's translated to English, so we're at, we're at a disadvantage. But the natural reading of it would be that what happened in verse 4 is previous to what happens in verse 5, that that's just what we consider to happen next. So if, if, if that's the way, and it's the most natural, simplistic way to interpret it, in addition to being very angry in verse 4, we now see Jonah as very stubborn in verse 5 to where he walks out. Sets up this uh, shelter for one to sit down and watch what happens. So once he's settled in, you have to use your imagination here. I don't know what it would look like. I picture Jonah being older. He's got some history of some things that he'd done. Um, but anybody that's ever watched someone angry walking away, I don't, I don't know that he slowly and methodically built that little hut. It's probably with a lot of grunts and talking under his breath. I mean, just color it up however you'd like to imagine this, but trying out of the desert, there's no, there's no hardware store there. This is whatever he can gather. And he's just going to sit there, mad at the world, or worse, mad at God. You ever had anybody say that about you? I suppose they're just mad at the world. We're kind of careful with saying, well, they're just mad at God, right? You, you don't want to throw away, throw around such... That's exactly what he is. He's mad at God. He's built this shed, shelter, and he's sitting there watching it. And this is the precise moment where God begins another round of lessons. And it's so different than the lessons or the, the, the approach to teaching Jonah we've seen before. The beginning, Jonah is quite quiet. We talked about that last week. He's not showing his cards. We don't know what's in his heart. He's just explosively spitting this all up now. We know exactly what's going on. And he's the one that's being loud. Before it was a storm. That's pretty violent. Now the storm is coming out of Jonah's mouth. And it's the Lord who's being very quiet. And with only a few questions in the form of, of, of his interaction with Jonah. Quite a different look at the interaction between these two. And the lesson that we're going to see reappears in the New Testament in the teachings of Jesus in very dramatic fashion through the parables. And each of them are addressed at the Pharisees. This is positioned to be kind of the first parable of that type of teaching that we'd later see with Jesus. You've got parables uh, like the prodigal son. We talked about the good Samaritan. We just talked about the, the, the forgiven servant who wouldn't forgive. Then you've got the workers in the vineyard. All of these things. You could point back to Jonah as being that guy. Well, Jonah's like the first Pharisee, basically. And in this little lesson, we're going to learn quite a bit. The narrator here, as we pick up from last week, begins with familiar language that's meant to take our brain backward in the four chapters. And the first thing he does is use a word we remember from the first chapter. The first chapter, the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah and courier him back to shore. In the fourth chapter, we're going to see the Lord make Three more appointments, which is interesting. It's not that the narrator here is just trying to show off as far as uh, 
literary interest and connects all these dots. No, this is specifically to illustrate the sovereignty of God in appointing the affairs of our life. The stuff that happens to us, good, bad, ugly, and everything in between, is written down in His appointment book. So if it's a big fish in chapter 1, or if it's this plant, or a worm, or a, a scorching east wind, they're all appointed. The first appointment is this plant. And it's basically a Jack and the Beanstalk style plant that overshadows Jonah in one single day. It's quite the uh, wonder weed. Uh, look at verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed, there's your first appointment, a plant made it come up over Jonah that it, was, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So this man's mad. He's sitting under his makeshift hut. The Lord mercifully allows this plant to grow over and make the shade even better such that he's not exceedingly angry anymore. He's now exceedingly glad. Massive shift in his mood. Almost a manic depressive swing for the textbooks. This guy is, this is quite the show here. But it's a massive swing. Now, if you've got a King James Version, or maybe an NIV, depending on which update you've got, you could have a whole list of things to describe this plant. ESV has plant. Another version has leafy plant. Uh, an older NIV has vine. King James Version should have gourd. And uh, you might say, why, why the vast... Uh, change in what they think this might be well because it's tough to go from so long ago with Hebrew into English before uh, any of those sciences ever gave plants their scientific names to try to figure out what it is what I got a kick out of was knowing that in Carthage when the Latin Vulgate was introduced there and those that were familiar with this story found out that it had been changed from gourd to the castor oil plant. Not the Hebrew word for kikayon, which is the same no matter what it is. That's the word Jonah would have used. It started a riot. You're changing our, our Bible on us. But really, as far as interpreting the scriptures, there's certain things we want to really get bent out of shape about, and that's when you're changing doctrines that would change the meaning of the Scriptures. We don't only fight about that. We'd be prepared to die for that. But this, the only real important thing is that the plant was a good shade plant. But as far as the specific species of plant that it was, I'm not so sure that's worth arguing about though it's interesting to read about that it started a riot once upon a time in Carthage the irony is what we're supposed to be looking at and it's unmistakable the change from great displeasure to great joy and then back again to great displeasure the very next day has nothing to do with Nineveh and has nothing to do with Jonah's problem with God or his justice it's all about Jonah's trivial sense of well-being and what he thinks is good and what he thinks is bad. It's basically just what Jonah wants at this point. And the satire of the narrator here and the irony that he's drawing into the picture tells the whole story. So yes, Jonah needed shade. He needed the rest. But he needed more than that. You might want to write this down. Rest without repentance is never enough. I'm thinking of an illustration. Actually, I'm thinking of throwing one out. Nah, let's say it. How many of you have ever been around someone where a kid is throwing a royal fit and what do you hear? They just need a nap. How many of you have been in an office with a big kid who happens to be the boss and he slammed the door and somebody says, he's probably just stressed? Does stress play into it? Yes. Does fatigue and need a napness make a child fidgety? Yes. Does that remove the responsibility for misbehavior? 
No. So what we've got here is a case of someone who's stretched to their limits, but we're seeing a very human prophet right here who's borderline in a big mess as far as the PR of his whole campaign. And God is being careful and tender with him. Almost to cover all this nonsense that's coming out of his mouth. But at the same time, allowing him to see for himself how self-centered he's actually being. So having delivered Jonah from discomfort for one day, the Lord withdraws his deliverance the next day and allows Jonah to feel the full strength of the hot sun. So he's taken him from anger to joy. Now he's going to take him from joy back to anger to prove a point. Does this by appointing a worm to sever the plant's roots and cause its canopy to wither away. Look at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. So not just the worm, but the wind on top of it. It's a double whammy. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it's better for me to die than to live. If, if you're the dramatic type, if you enjoy reading literature and you like pulling out the nuance of certain turns of phrases and words, I really like the word attack here. He appointed the worm to attack the plant. The plant was what Jonah was so happy about. And I don't know how often you use the word attack in a normal week. Uh, I, I feel like I'm hearing it more and more. It's strange how the use of words move around. Usually you hear the word attack in military settings or in history class. This nation attacked this nation. Sometimes you hear it in sports like uh, an offensive attack against you know this goalie or whatever. I hear it in places like, well, the other day I was standing in Walmart and was attacked by this woman with something she said. And I'm thinking, she have machete or, you know, uh, double swords or, or... No, it's just words. But that's true. Words can hurt as bad or worse sometimes. Some people would rather just fight it out in the playground than have to hear something said to them. So all of that fits, but you, you must admit that the word attack is not made out of marshmallows or flowers or it doesn't smell like essential oils. It, it's a rough blood and guts word that's used to describe some form of destruction, right? What is Jonah doing? He's mad. He's sitting under this plant hoping that he has a front row seat to something that the annals of history will report on for, for millennia, perhaps. For anyone that missed when Sodom and Gomorrah was taken out by fire from heaven, Jonah's not going to miss this one. He's hoping God will do the right thing and he'll witness this shock and awe as the wrath of God descends on these people and destroys them. And while he's sitting there with his teeth clenched watching for it, there's this little tiny worm attacking the plant that he loves so much. If you've watched enough nature shows, you know the strength those little worms have in those two pinchers. I think they're called mandibles. And what they can do. Uh, I was watching one the other day where these sea urchins get all over the giant kelp forest and can wipe them out if it wasn't for the otters that wipe out the sea urchins but those little things they've got to, to cut it so this little worm starts working on the roots and when they cut the roots the hydraulic pressure that's necessary in the cell walls of this plant to keep it tight and working good as shade it loses the pressure and it just starts to wilt you watch your plants. Once it's not got enough water, it falls over because it can't sit up straight. And then this east wind comes in and starts to take every bit of that moisture. It probably was able to wither in just minutes. And this is no uh, small temperature swing 
What we're told here is this scorching east wind is normally referred to as a Sirocco. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? A Sirocco. Almost as cool as the uh, New Testament when, when Paul was over the water and the Eurocladon, which was the storm came by. I actually put Eurocladon on the side of my kayak one time just because I thought it sounded cool and was waiting for somebody to ask what it meant. And I was fishing with two other guys that I'd met through a fella at church that he had met on message boards where people would meet up and fish together. And the other guy's name was Ishmael. And then this other guy was a fireman. And about halfway through the day, he said, let me get this straight. I don't read my Bible. I don't know much about it, but I'm fishing with Isaac and Ishmael. <laughs> and what is that on your boat? And I said, it's Eurocladon. It's, it's, it's like a hurricane over the Mediterranean that shipwrecked Paul the Apostle. He said, you're crazy. Why would you do that? I said, because it sounds cool and I get to tell you a story. Well, this is a Sirocco. That this is a, a, an east wind. And one afternoon on a trip to Israel, we got to stand on the, the shepherd's field overlooking Jerusalem. If you've been there, it's, it's wide open space. But they told us the day before, uh, dress in something that will keep the sun off of you but isn't hot, the east wind's on its way. It felt like a hairdryer, dry, hot air. And what I read about this is that during a Sirocco, which affects uh, the whole area there from Israel over to where Jericho and uh, even Nineveh would be, the temperatures would rise steeply, sometimes even climbing in the night, would remain high somewhere between 16 to 22 degrees above the average. At times, every scrap of moisture may seem to be extracted from the air so that one has the curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn much tighter than usual. That's the situation Jonah's about to experience. And I thought, just for fun... Fuquay's average July high is 89 degrees. Let's take the high end for dramatic effect at 22. That would mean 111 degrees. How many of you would be interested in that? No. I'd need some shade as well. So that's the situation Jonah finds himself in. And now it's the time where God reminds Jonah of the question that he's already asked him. But now he inserts just one more piece of information to color up the same question, but to give a, a perspective or another point of view. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? That's the question now. Same as the question before. The answer is, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That's verse 9. Now, there are some scholars who believe that angry enough to die would be the equivalent to the force of an expletive. How many of you believe your Bibles have expletives in them? You should. There are a few. Paul has the more famous ones. They're kind of lost in translation. And it, it's never a good idea for teachers or speakers to try to get the raised eyebrow or the dropped jaw but we have some of the four-letter words that we use. Where do you think we got them? Right here in our Bibles. And the one that seems to be carrying the weight of what Jonah's saying back to God is the one that we use to describe not the location of our eternal punishment, but the, the being sent to that eternal punishment. When he says, I'm angry, angry enough to be dead from it, it's about the equivalent of saying, I'm destroyed, angry. Now, that's about as close as I'm going to get you to. What the commentators say is present in what he's saying. Enough to be on the edge of cursing to his Lord. And by showing that, that Jonah's ready to die because there's no more shade is the fact that his anger is exposed. If the Lord is pushing him to see what will come out of his mouth, the button has been pushed. He doesn't need to poke or prod 
we might color it up by saying, oh, so that little plant means so much to you. That's what you're so angry about. That's why you want to die, because your, your plant is dead. So really, this is all about you. It's not about me. It's not about justice. It's not about fairness. It's not about Nineveh. It's just because you didn't get your way. You're hot, and now you're ready to check out. But that wouldn't be far off. The fact is, his anger has exposed how that both then and now, that anger is rooted in self-pity, not a genuine concern over the validity of God's word or his fairness. So put another way, Jonah has gone from rage to joy, back to rage, without anything having changed with God or Nineveh, but only over a castor oil plant. That's, that's the reduction of this experiment or lesson that God has put his prophet through. A castor oil plant. And here's where it could be fun. If I had like a big hole in the time we've got together to fill up with stuff, I could talk about what I learned over 41 years as a pastor's son, 20-some years worth of full-time ministry, and whatever the difference between those two numbers of just hanging out in a church all my life, and then talk about all the fights, the real good fights that were actually over something worth fighting about. Um, but I just have to tell jokes in that space because I don't have any examples of really good fights that happened because they really should have happened. But I got a whole list of fights that happened that were over stupid stuff that shouldn't matter, that aren't even as good as a castor oil plant. God made the castor oil plant, but most of the stuff that we fuss about, stuff we made or bought or wish we could buy, or just thought. But what it does, when you see the explosion, is it alerts us, just like from last week, to the massive amounts of emotions that we attach to things that are mine. And my, my sister got my dad a gift one time. It was a box, a little box, and on the top of it, it just said, mine. Put your stuff in there. Well, leave it alone if you've got it in the mind box. The Lord said, verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. Listen to the words, the you here. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You've been concerned for this plant, Jonah. This is where I'd like to ask, should I not be concerned for this city? That's the direction he's going. The contrast is drawn between Jonah and God and the own image and the attachment that Jonah has over a plant that he didn't make and he's only known for a day. And what does that say about God's love for His creation? Think of it this way. Maybe it's worth writing down. Which is the bigger condescension? You know what condescension is? That's where God condescends to the level of man when He comes into this word, world as, as the Son of God in the flesh. Which is the, the greater condescension? Jonah to a plant or God to Nineveh? And Jonah and the plant are both God's creation. They're both creatures. God is God. You almost would expect there to be more of a connection between Jonah and the plant than God and this creation by virtue of the fact that Jonah's somewhat dependent in the world with that plant. God isn't dependent on us at all. God was doing just fine before He ever spoke this world into existence. He was not incomplete. We don't complete God in any way. He, he is totally happy without us, but decided out of no necessity on His own part to create us just because He wanted to. So His attachment to us is also voluntary. 
It's a, it's, it's, it's a, a condescension that almost baffles the, the mind to be able to think of it. As uh, Tim Keller put it, we are just lent to God, if, if we can even say that. And then that'd be the world, and we're just pieces of lint on top of a bigger piece of lint. What does this say about God's attachment to these people that are wicked against him? It's a magnificent description of his grace. And then he uses the word perished here. Both the sailors and the Ninevites used that word. They prayed that they wouldn't perish. And then God uses that term to describe what happened to the plant. Jonah, you're so angry at the destruction, the perishing of this plant. I want to know where your heart is over the destruction of 120,000 people or the destruction of the men you spent time with on a boat because the inconsistency is deafening. So God had put his prophet on the level of an ordinary man. This, this lesson he undergoes is, is quite the strip down. The discomforts of the summer heat, the attractiveness of the plant's shade, the destructive energy sapping effects of the Sirocco had nothing to do with Jonah's theology. He reacted to them as an ordinary man in the setting of nature. This is about as, as elementary as you could get of a class God would put a man through. And it's telling how indifferent Jonah was to God's creation around him. He didn't care. Get rid of 120,000 and their animals quicker than you get rid of my favorite plant. We've made friends and I need it to keep the sun off my head. Now that is a myopic, self-serving keep talking for the next 30 minutes on what, how, how wrong that all is. But this is God's prophet. I read the other day that uh, a lot of our state parks are having to be closed, not because we don't have people to watch them, but because people are tearing them all up. They're spray painting all over things in our state parks and throwing trash all over the place because they can't go to the movies and they can't go to ball games and they can't go on vacation and they can't fit on the beach. So they just tear this stuff up. And they've got volunteers who run on these parkways and things, you know, helping the employees clean the place back up again. Don't watch any of the documentaries online about how much plastic's floating around in the ocean unless you just want to feel sick for you know, the next week or so. So you can forget about it. it what, what we've done to the place that God said was good when he was done with it is no different than what Jonah's doing here. It's, it's, it's almost like a, a big uh, worldwide, can't see it from my house, so what difference does it make? Right? God wants Jonah to see it. This isn't right, Jonah. You are compassionless. Verse 11 is where it closes out. And should... Not I pity. That's the word for attachment. Nineveh, a great city, contrast to a plant, where there are more than 120,000 persons. And then listen to this, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So again, the last words describe a concern for the things that God has made. You know, when... when when God created Adam, he, the first job he gave him was to name those things. Do you name stuff that doesn't matter to you? Do you name the milk jug you're just going to empty and throw away? Now, you might name your, your classic car or your boat. People name their boats, don't they? You name your children. These animals had names. Noah's Ark, was that just to make the story fun or was God purposefully making a way of provision to, to save them all two by two? This is the same God who notices the sparrow that falls or clothes the lily of the field better than any of the things that we can 
put down the fashion runway. This is not a small thing. This is, this is a, a, a display of God's glory. Even the snake that scared me in my garage and paid for it last week displays God's glory and it's under a curse. So God has a valid point in what he's saying. To, to look at this as, you know, 120,000 people, what's a few cows mixed in? It, it's, it's a waste. No, it's, it's unnecessary. It's God's created work. And the way this is described, the helplessness of this great city was sufficient argument for the compassion displayed by God. If, if you look at the emotional descriptions of Jesus in the Gospels, that he had compassion on this group or that group is the one that stands out among them all, if you just count them all up. This is the same uh, spirit of, of Jesus when at his death he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Which is the way these are described. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. It's often used of children who can't take care of themselves. And is another dramatic uh, indication of the massive amounts of God's grace that he gives us. That's the way he describes the brutal Ninevites as children who don't know what they're doing. Now, is that the way that we describe people who do things that we don't like or don't understand? If, if we've seen some people who have pulled on to themselves troubles by their own foolishness, usually we say something like, serves them right. Or we say, I, I, I just have no idea why, how people could be so stupid. Uh, that's our way of distancing ourselves from that type of thing. That's what we're doing. What Jesus is doing, what God is doing, what the, not, Jonah's being taught... This is how God attaches himself to the Ninevites. By having pity on them, compassion, as their creator. Instead of distancing himself, he's drawing them closer. How many of you are ready for a conclusion? <laughs> it, there's enough here to, to have been indicted on multiple accounts. So the curtain falls on Jonah's four chapters and we're given no answer to the question. Are you right to be angry? Are you right to be angry for the plant? And you just fill in, cross out for the plant and put whatever you need to in your space that just, without that, you couldn't be happy and you wouldn't want to live. Let me try to boil this down as far as what I think would be a good, a good way to look at this at the end, having considered the book as a whole. We find that the focus of this little book is not a great fish. It's not a ship full of sailors. It's not even a great pagan city. And I don't believe that the focus of the book is the prophetic ministry of, of God's man, Jonah. I think the focus of the book is the heart of Jonah. And its need for correction. Furthermore, I think it's obvious that his servant's heart is more important to God than his servant's service. I think there's more of a focus on God working on Jonah to correct him than anything else in the book, though they're all important. But the one who needs the adjustment, the saving, the mercy, the compassion... ...surgery is Jonah such that we're not even given the, the, the privilege of knowing how he answers the book. It's left so that we can answer it for ourselves. 
So the problem, Jonah couldn't get out of his own way. That, that, that's what, Jonah was his biggest problem. Jonah's what got Jonah into trouble all along, and Jonah's what needs to be fixed. And this is Sinclair Ferguson. He says, if there's a specific danger for the professing Christian today, it must certainly be indifference to and ignorance of the true nature of the human heart. This is a good case study of that. How easily outward behavior and established patterns of belief can hide from us the true need we have for a new heart, which beats in time with the heart of God. I think that's very well said. So in the last analysis, and this is just a way to to square this record with other places in Scripture, to identify not just one outlying story, Wow, Jonah was just the worst prophet behaving badly. No, there's more of that. The pattern is deeper. We see it all through the Scriptures. Jonah wasn't prepared to accept the fact that the reputation of the God of grace in Nineveh necessitated the loss of the reputation of Jonah in Israel. That's what he was mad about. God made him look bad. God's message... Change some things up for Jonah. And what Jonah didn't realize was that for God to be big in Nineveh, Jonah has to be small in Israel. He wasn't willing to do that. This pattern would repeat itself in the life of another voyager on the Mediterranean, the Apostle Paul. For the reputation of the God of grace among the Gentiles necessitated the loss of the reputation of Paul in Israel. Half the book of Acts is Paul arguing with Israelites over the grace that has been given freely to the Gentiles. Paul adjusts to this change much better to where the minimization of Paul in Israel is fine so long as the maximization of God's grace among the Gentiles takes place. And of course the blueprint for the whole thing is what we read in one of his books to the Philippians. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So for the salvation of this world, it necessitated that the Son of God be small on earth for the God of heaven to be big in the lives of Christians. So what does that say to us? Same thing Jesus was saying. If you've come to me in order to make a name for yourself, you're going to be miserably defeated, disappointed, it's, it's, a, it's a waste of your time. I'll give you a cross you can take up. You can follow me. They've hated me. They will hate you. But my agenda, my compassion for the least of these. And see, we're right back to the idea of the elder brother syndrome, right? Where the ones closest to Jesus have the biggest problem with those that are far away from Jesus if he seems to have the affections for them the same as he does for us. Jesus is the hero of this story. Jonah's not. Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness its condemnation. Jesus went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish its salvation. That's the difference. So perhaps no other Old Testament prophet looks as bad as Jonah. But here's, here's the grace in the book of Jonah. God doesn't just accept him and leave him alone. Neither will he just accept and leave you alone if you're his child. In the book of Jonah, he sends a storm. He sends a fish. He sends a plant. He sends a wind. He commissions him once. He commissions him twice. He speaks to him in questions calmly the point is this God is too holy and too loving to either destroy Jonah or leave him the way he is 
The only thing a God like this can do with Jonah is change him. That's why I want to believe the story ends well. We just don't know it. We'll get to hear the rest of it later, I hope. But here's, here's how it's described. This is Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I'm thankful for Jonah. But I'm in awe of his God. This has been a good book to study. It steamrolled me. Perhaps it has you as well. And if so, that's a good trade over a fish and a wind and a plant and all those other things, isn't it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your words. We thank you for the ability to sit at your feet and gaze on our own hearts and our sinfulness in contrast to the holiness of a God who'd love us enough not to just destroy us and never to leave us the way we are but meticulously patiently tenderly change us Lord, save us just like we read about. Not because of our works of righteousness, but because of your mercy and for your glory. We thank you for the truth of your word and for your guidance along life's way. We ask this all in your name. Amen.